Today we're hitting two of our core values as a church, truth and mission. Um, Our core values are truth, worship, community, and missional living. And uh, we're actually going to be plowing through Scripture uh, a lot. If you know me, uh, my name is Matt Oxley. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor here at Marine Creek. Um, Normally I teach about five or six Scriptures at a time. Today, um, if you've seen your note sheets that you got, you know there's more than that on there. So I've got to stay, I've got to walk the wire today. Um, because you're mine, I walk the line. And um, so if you've got your Bible, crack that puppy open to Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to kind of be cooking through here. Um, Let me set this up a little bit. Uh, In Matthew chapter 9, at the end of that is where Jesus continues to to display and exhibit his power over darkness. He heals uh, men born blind. He uh, casts out another demon, and he's accused of having his power come from the enemy instead of from God. And then he says this beautiful thing uh, as he's looking out and seeing this, this just white harvest. He's saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he sends workers into his mission field. Now, here's the thing about that. Jesus doesn't say pray for the harvest because he's got that under control. He's saying pray for workers in the harvest. And so we're actually going to be talking about mission because today we're talking about his disciples and the mission that he sends those disciples out into And that is the work in the mission field and in the harvest field. And uh, we're going to hit that. So um, today is not one of those uh, questions are, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Or are you, it's more so, what kind of Christian are you? Um, So we're going to narrow this down. There's there's two types of people we're going to talk about. There's believers and uh, and then there's disciples. And so think about it this way. Uh, Jesus loves everyone. Um, his grace is, is there, is, is for everyone, and he desires a relationship with everyone. As a matter of fact, he accepts us unconditionally. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. We don't have to fix our stuff in order for him to accept us. He accepts us unconditionally, but that's when the bar kind of goes up because we can either live life as a believer that we say, okay, I believe in his power. I believe in who he is. I believe I have a relationship with him, or we can live as a disciple and say, I want to follow him. I want my life to reflect everything that he is about. And so uh, what I love about this is if you break this down, Jesus loves believers. He loves all people but he uses disciples. In other words, he loves other people through disciples, which is, I think, what the, the kingdom is all about, that Jesus desires a relationship with me, just not so I'm just like restored and put on a shelf. He's like, no, Matt's built for function. Um, I'm not built for speed, by the way. I'm more, a lot of you guys are Jeep guys. I'm, a, I'm built like a Jeep, okay? I'm utilitarian. I'll climb stuff. Not real fast. I kind of, I'll lumber over life, you know? I don't know. I've got nothing on that. But, um, but he desires to use me to reach other people. He restores you. He uses this power that he has, and he restores you for a purpose. He's not an antique collector where he says, here's a broken, burnout human being that is just messed up. They're dead and and life is not moving. They have no connection with God. And then he says, here's my grace. Let's have a relationship. And so you're fully restored, and he puts you in a cabinet to show off to other people. That's not true. That's not the case. He restores us for purpose. 
and uh, we desire to be involved in that purpose. And so here we go. Um, over the last, it feels like months, we've been uh, talking through Jesus' power and authority in the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus gives this great Sermon on the Mount. Or he's sitting on a hillside. He's teaching to people. He probably covered that material in about 10, 15 minutes. It took me, what, three months? Um, I don't think it took that long, but it feels like it. But Jesus gets on, he teaches us, and in 5 through 7, he's, he's telling us about the life that he desires for us to live. And then he comes down, and then it's just right into it. So in, in chapters uh, 8 and 9, we see this authority that Jesus talks about. We think of it this way. Jesus tells us how to live in Matthew 5 through 7. And then in 8 and 9, he's showing us how to live. And now it brings us to Matthew chapter 10, and he's saying, now you go do it. It's kind of like a perfect parent, if you think about it. Or we've got a lot of teachers in our community. And the way we teach is what? We, we tell them, we show them, and then they do it. And, and Jesus understands this. Uh, the reason he, we see so many times his power displayed in different ways, and, and we get record of that, it's not so, we, I mean, we should be able to be told Jesus is all-powerful. There's nothing that's above him. There's no power that's greater than he is, and there it is. I mean, if I were writing the, the, the Bible, I could probably reduce it to a pamphlet if we didn't have to have so much red, uh, repetition and, and all this stuff beat into us. We could probably say Jesus is all-powerful. We fell when Adam sinned. Jesus came. He was born around Christmas time, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and he was rose again from the power of the Holy Spirit, and he desires you to follow him. And so live by the power of the Holy Spirit. There it is. And then at the end, it's like, and he's coming back someday. I mean, I could one-page that, man. I mean, I could even do big font for those of us that are starting to have trouble reading these small letters. So... But Jesus knows that we have to have repetition. And so he goes in, but he, he's just empowering his disciples. And so let's pick up, because I'm going to have to do the boot scooting boogie through this chapter, because I don't move so fast, those of you that know me. Um, Matthew chapter 10. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. What I love about it, he talks about the power, he displays the power, now he gives this power away. And so if you think about this, Jesus gives authority for us to do what he's called us to do. He doesn't give us authority to do what we want to do. He pulls these, these 12 men together and he says, what you heard me tell you about, what you just saw me do, now I'm giving you that power for you to go do it. And he starts to outline this mission for these disciples. Because these men, yes, they struggled with belief. Yes, they struggled with doubt. Yes, they struggled with sin. They argued with each other. They had differences. But they were disciples. They were following Jesus with everything they were. And he gave them the authority that they had seen in him. And then let's go on, Matthew 2, verse 2. I'll read 2 through 4. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. I love, this is the book of Matthew. Matthew's writing this. He just mentions these men's name, but he goes, when I get to me, I'm the tax collector. I don't think Matthew understands that it wasn't a, a good position then, and it never got better. So Matthew, the tax collector. 
If you work for the IRS, I love you. Man, I'm, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot. This is another career, a zealot. Um, I'll explain that in just a minute. And Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And so he's, Jesus is calling these men, these 12 guys that he had said, follow me. Um, some were fishermen. That's another uh, um, career that had been mentioned in the calling of the disciples. But he calls these 12 men who were in these other careers. And if you think about it, at the age that these men were, they weren't the brightest uh, stars in the sky. They weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer. And the reason we know this is because they were Jews. And so they would have followed in a track to follow in a religious system, which meant all of their training and education up to this point was geared for them to follow a teacher or a rabbi. And if they were in the family business or some other trade, it meant that they weren't the best of the best. And Jesus goes to not the best of the best, and he says, follow me. I'm going to take what you do, and I'm going to refocus that. I'm going to restore you for purpose. And then he pulls them together, and he says, I've got a mission for you. Now, interestingly, the the two careers that were mentioned there and how they got paired up when you read some of the commentary, Matthew, who's a tax collector, Simon is a zealot. We understand tax collectors. Really, tax collectors has calmed down. They're like poodles today. They were like saber-toothed lions back in the day. And so we understand, and I talked to you a couple weeks ago about how uh, corrupt and how evil a tax collector would be and how hard they would be. Well, a zealot was someone who was a Jew but desired to overthrow the Roman rule of the Jewish people. And they would do this by force. They would plot against, um, if you think about it, they were really uh, first century terrorists to try to overthrow the Roman government. And they were Jews. And for them to see another Jew, like a tax collector, deflect and be an employee of the Roman government, there was a deep hatred for that person. And what's interesting is Jesus says, okay, I'm sending you disciples out. I've given you authority, um, and we're going to pick teams. And so he says, Matthew, Simon the Zealot, you guys are going to go together. I mean, you got to love that. If you don't think Jesus has a sense of humor, he's taking two men that would absolutely hate each other, that, that he's saying, you're going to have to stay at the Holiday Inn Express together in the same room. I mean, I think of planes, trains, and automobiles, you know. I don't know. We're not going to go off on a tangent. I've got to stay on track. I've got to focus. But those aren't pillows. Um, so... He's, sending, he's bringing these 12 men together, and he's sending them out for purpose. Really, Jesus understands what he's doing. He's calling these 12 men out, and he's saying, I'm sending you out to die. I mean, he knew that when they accepted his mission, Jesus was signing their death warrant because these disciples were, were murdered in ways that were almost as hideous as the cross. Some of these disciples didn't feel that they were worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus was, so their cross was turned upside down, and they were crucified upside down. They were uh, Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas when he told Jesus after his resurrection, he says, unless I touch the holes in your hand and my hand touches the hole in your side, I can't believe. You know how Thomas was killed? A sword was run through his side. The only disciple that died of old age, and he died from probably serious complications, was John, who wrote the, the, the book of Revelation after his exile on the island of Patmos. 
So Jesus knew that when they accepted this mission, what, what they were getting into. And we start to think, well, that can be pretty cruel of Jesus to call these men together and say, I'm sending you out to die. Let me challenge you with a thought here. It would be more cruel to send people out without Jesus, without the authority, without that protection and that covering. And see, we tend to think, well, if, if our mindset is a believer, we tend to think that's unfair. If our mindset is a disciple, then we understand exactly what the mission is we've signed up for. And that's the truth. That's a core value. We're going to preach the truth. Today's not going to be fluffy. Hey, man, if you've got enough faith, your car's going to be fine. Your kids are going to be well-behaved. Your mortgage is going to be paid. You're going to be able to have all the groceries you want. That, that's not the Christian life. If you've been fed that line of something, then I'm sorry. We're going to preach the truth. The truth is Jesus is sending these men out to die. And we can avoid the cost of discipleship, but that means we have to avoid discipleship. If I, want to, if I say to myself or I say to God, God, I don't want to pay that price, then I'm saying I don't want to follow you with everything I am. If I'm only willing to be uh, behind Jesus when things are good, then I'm only a believer in what I think his power can do. I'm not a believer in Jesus. I believe in the power. And Jesus is like, you, 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 you just missed the point. It's not about what Jesus can do. It's about who he is, and he's sending them out to, to die. Let me, let me help you understand this. You cannot die for something you are unwilling to live for. If we are going to be called by Jesus, and his disciples are called, and their mission is to go out knowing their fate, they can't die for that unless they're willing to live for it. In our life, we can't, die for Christ unless we're willing to live for him. I mean, we can't make the hard choice and the hard sacrifices unless we're willing to up front say, hey, I don't want to have to think about dying for Jesus, but am I willing to live for him? And we have to understand as disciples, we're called to follow in his footsteps. When a rabbi, Jesus was a rabbi, when he would call a disciple to follow him, he's saying, I believe you can do what I can do. Jesus is telling these 12 men, I believe what you have heard me say, what you've seen me do, and now I'll give you authority. I believe you can do it. So come on, let's go. And they get out, and Jesus is sending them out now without him physically there. But I love this. He's sending them out into culture. Let me help you understand something. Discipleship is not standing outside the culture pointing in. Discipleship is not avoiding culture. And we get in the culture, but we don't let culture get into us. Remember what Jesus said? You live in the world, not of the world. And I'm sick and tired of, of people that are saying, I'm a disciple, I follow Jesus. And we stand on the sidelines of life, and we point, and we mock, and we point out every little flaw in humanity, and we sit back, and we want to be judgmental, and we want to just wait and sit in a comfortable place until Jesus comes back. And then we can say, whew, I'm glad I'm out of that place. Let me tell you something. I love living in the world. I'm not of the world, but I love living in it. There's a lot I love in the world. There's a lot of people I love that really don't love God. There's a lot of things that I love. And that means as a disciple, I'm willing to go into the world and live with an intentional mission 
and focus. Let's read about the focus. Here we go. Verse 5. These 12, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. What he's doing is he's, he's taking this mission that he's given these disciples and he's focusing it down to a specific task. He's saying, I want you to go in and preach this to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. It, he, Jesus isn't saying to all the world yet. We like, in our, we like today to just say, jump to that all the world. And he's focusing this down on a specific task. When Jesus, after he's resurrected in Matthew 28, comes back and says, now go into all the world. You've been working here. Now go into all the world. He's bringing focus to this mission. What he's saying to the disciples here is he's saying, go into your world and then go into all the world. But we've got to understand that this applies to us in a lot of ways. We come into this relationship with God or we desire to be missionally minded and we want to save the world for Jesus. And I believe God wants to save the world. And I also believe he wants to save it through working through us. And that's what I love about the kingdom of God and the inclusive nature of a relationship. But we have to understand that too many times we step over our families to get to Africa. Too many, see, there it is, boom, it's on. I hear the bell and I just go. Too many times we step over our families to get to Africa. Or we feel called into the mission field, but we're unwilling to engage in mission in our own household. And what he's saying to the disciples is focus your mission. That, that God is calling, and I have sat with, with guys that have, I've mentored over years that have gone into mission field. I, I have uh, guys that I've mentored that are missionaries in Australia, then the Philippines, and I, I love talking with these men. And it's been interesting to see their journey because they have this focus for the world, but then all of a sudden God puts the wall up and he says, hold up, focus on home. And when they start getting that process of a disciple, their mission gets focused and then God takes the scope and he makes it bigger and bigger and bigger. God called us to start a church, to preach the gospel to the world. Yeah, all the world. But our focus Man, I would be overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed today just because you guys are bringing gifts. And I'm looking at this. We got an extra trailer here today to handle all the gifts you've brought. I'm overwhelmed with the scope of Eagle Mountain, Saginaw, Lake Worth, White Settlement, and Fort Worth. That overwhelms me. But let's get focused in our mission, and God will start expanding that. When we launched the church, you know where our focus was? Five miles around this location. And God starts expanding that. And that's what we have to understand, not jumping over. There's a faith element. When he says, don't take any gold or silver, extra clothes. It wasn't the disciples' mom saying, take an extra pair of underwear in case you have a camel accident. You know, you know they, they went out, man. They just went. You will be supplied your needs. And there's this faith element that Jesus is saying. I've given you authority. 
Remember, seek me first. He taught all this in Matthew. Do not worry about what you'll eat or drink, what clothes you're going to wear. The, the lilies of the field, see how they're clothed. I love you more than those. Go, don't worry about that stuff. You saw me do it. You saw me say it. You heard me say it. You saw me do it. We've lived it. You've lived it with me. Now go do it. And he's saying there's this element of faith that you have to have working with you in this mission. There's been so many times that I just, I, I, I pray, and a lot of times on Sunday mornings, about 9.32 and 11.17, that I'm like, God, if you don't show up, nothing's going to happen. And Saturday nights, I, and Friday nights, and Thursday, I just get this burden that, God, you have to move, your spirit has to do something, or, or we're messed up, or we're, we're just, we're, we're in trouble. And that element of faith has to kick in as we focus our mission. And I believe we have to live in that faith. And we understand this, that that Jesus will never call us to do anything that he hasn't taught us and shown us and modeled for us. He won't call us to give anything that we haven't received already. Remember he said, freely give because you freely receive. Too many times we sit back and we hoard what God gives us you know the show Hoarders, it just makes it, ah. I'm not OCD, ADD, any, any EDDs or anything, anything like that. When I watch that show, I get creeped out. I'm like OCD something, I, I don't know. I would probably be CDO because I like to alphabetize things. I don't know. But I watch that show and we can't hoard what God gives us. He gives us all this abundance of grace. And those people we work with, you know, the ones that kind of suck the life out of you, that you just, you hear them walking down the hall. You know their footsteps. I had a boss, and I worked in the corporate world, and we had hollow floors for all the, the IT stuff. I could hear her walking all the way down the hall because I knew her walk. She always wore heels, and I knew she was coming to my office. I'm like, oh, man. God, give me grace. Well, he gives me grace, but I got to give it to her. He gives you grace with the people you live with, you work with, you interact with, not just for you, but so you can give it to them. Freely you've received. Freely give it. We talk about this with finances. You know, I want God to bless me, man. I want to be blessed. But I want to be blessed because I give away more than I should. I can never outgive God on grace, on money, on time, on love, on mercy. I can never outgive God. And what I love about it is the more I try, the more he gives me. I was meeting with a, a pastor friend of ours, and, and he's been mentoring me through a church growth process. And he was saying, do you need money? I was like, no, man, our people are generous. I was like, I don't need your money. I need your time. I need your help on how to lead right. And he leans back. He says, see, that makes me want to give you more money because you're managing and being good stewards with what you got. Because we can give them. You guys, let me just say this. Your generosity is crazy. I know you guys were about to scrap with the first service a couple weeks ago because they got all the kids. And then made me call last week. I had to get more kids. And then this week I had to call and get more kids from Northbrook. Every child that had a need for Christmas at Northbrook Elementary, you guys covered. Because you can't outgive God. You had a focus. That's what happens when we focus that mission. That's what happens when we say, God, there are kids that aren't going to get Christmas. It's not fair, and we're going to do something about it. And we got faith that you're going to do something about it. 
And all of a sudden, you're making me make all these phone calls about having, I need more kids, I need more kids. The school's overwhelmed. I mean, I go in the office, people are crying. I'm like, don't cry. I'm a sympathetic crier. You puke, I puke. You cry, I cry, man. No. Just give me the kids and I'm out of here. But that's you. That's you working that. That's focus. Let's go on because sometimes it doesn't always go the way we planned and we have to handle this issue where we want to take vengeance. Let's get on to 11 through 16. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. When we look at the life of a disciple, when you try to put together a job description of a disciple, there is one responsibility that will never be on there, and that's revenge. God handles the revenge for us. And honestly, it kind of bothers me because God is perfect at it. He knows exactly how to do it, when to do it, how much to do it. If it were up to me, I would have this power just like, boom, and, and just poof, there goes a person. You know, vengeance is mine, saith Matt. You cut me off. What's that finger? Poof. See ya. <laughs> I hope God accepts. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. But we tend to think about revenge on how we want it. Let me just tell you something about God's revenge. He knows exactly how to do it. When we want the hot coals, ah, he gives grace. Because let me tell you something. As much as I've wanted to pour hot coals on other people's heads and God pours grace, I'm sure I wouldn't have made it past five or six years old before somebody looked at me and went, poof. <laughs> you know, just as much as I, it's a, it's a cycle, baby. And God handles that. And he's saying, that there's going to be times where people are not going to accept you. And this idea of shaking the dust off your feet, remember the focus of the mission. He's sending these disciples to the Jews. The Jewish leaders, rabbis, and and, uh, religious leaders, if they felt a town or a home was unholy and they had been near it, they would go to the edge of that property or that town and they would shake every piece of dust off of, like I just did Ryan's petals, they would shake every piece of dust off of them to show you're not even worthy for me to carry your dust. And what Jesus is saying is this isn't revenge, but this is how I am working this when those religious leaders do not accept you and they come against you with pressure because they should know better. And when they act stubborn, just do the, just shake the dust off your feet and move on. And that's God saying, I got this. I've got the vengeance. And he's saying, shake the dirt off, trust me for the outcome. We tend to have an idea of how we want God to work in our life. I don't know if you're like me in that regard, but we tend to know how we want God to work. But we have to trust God for the outcome. I mean, you know, we tend to get in our mind that we'll walk in our office or our home and someone who who we've been praying to have this relationship with God that, that we just walk in and they just sense God in us so much so that they fall to their knees and they say, I need God. And you're like, yes, you do. 
and you repeat this prayer after me. I, and so then you pull out your Jesus knife and you notch your belt. You're like, there's another one. You know, you got da 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 another one bites. I don't know. But, um, but we trust God for the outcome. It's not going to happen that way. If it does, call me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make fun of you and laugh at you. But I'll, I'll be excited if that happens to you, but I'm still going to laugh because it just doesn't happen that way. We have to trust God for the outcome. We have to trust that God is in control, that he is sovereign. And here's the deal when he's talking about the snake and the dove. Um, this mentality, I understand I used to work in the corporate world. I understand the political games. I understand the, the, the games people play. I understand all of the stuff. And what he's saying is be like a snake. Know it. Know the rules. Understand your environment. Be very sensitive to your environment. Be able to handle it. But then be like a dove. So know the ways of the world, but don't use them. Know the situations you're working in, you're living in, you're dealing with, but be peacemakers about it. Be peacemakers in the political situation of your job. Be peacemakers in the relationship challenges that you face in your jobs or in your homes or in your families, in your communities. Know the ways, but don't use them. And then how do we do all this is the source. Jesus is saying in Matthew 17 through 20, he says, be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to local councils and flog you in their synagogues. Side note, from men's Bible study Thursday night, we were talking about flogging. Just so you understand, flogging um, is what happened to Jesus with the cat of nine tails. Uh, They'll take a leather whip that has multiple strands on it. They'll get it in a rosin to get it sticky. They'll put pieces of crushed bone, crushed glass, crushed clay pots, something to make it sharp, and they would lash the back of the person being flogged. They can only, according to law, flog you with 40 lashes because 41 is just, you know, mean, I guess. I don't know. But they were so concerned, not about hurting the person they were flogging, but about breaking their ceremonial law, that they had a rule called 40 minus 1. They would only go to 39 just in case they miscounted because they didn't want to be in trouble for punishing you. And he's saying, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> you're, going to go, <laughs> you're going to be brought into their synagogues and you're going to be flogged. Um, on my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So Jesus is saying, when you are brought in, I am your source. The Holy Spirit will empower you and give you what to say. What I love about this is the Holy Spirit gives you what you have prepared for, which means there's an element of us studying. Have you ever felt the Holy Spirit speaking through you? I don't mean speaking in tongues. I mean when you are engaged in a conversation. Maybe there's someone hurting at work. Maybe they trust you with telling you that their their marriage is, is ending. Maybe they trust you to tell you with what they're struggling with because they see that you're a disciple. And you feel the Holy Spirit speaking through you. It's almost like you're watching yourself have a conversation or you're watching God have a conversation through you to this person. That happens to me. And it's almost like when, when the kid realizes he's riding a bike without training wheels and your hand's not on him, that's when he falls. I have those moments and I'm like, oh, God, I don't want this to end. No, 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 keep me out of the way. <laughs> you know, 
Keep your hand on the seat. I don't want to fall. You're saying exactly what this person needs to hear. You're speaking truth. There's mission involved with what you're saying through me. Come on. But a lot of times when I realize and think that through afterwards, I was like, well, the Holy Spirit was leading that conversation. But that's exactly what I was studying last week in my scripture time. That's what I was thinking about in my meditation time. That's what I was, that's what I was spending time with God kind of just taking in. And what happens is as we take it in and study, the Holy Spirit will at the right time, boom, here's your source. You're brought before this person. You don't know what to say. Watch this. Boom, here it is. And you're bringing words of life and hope and peace and love. And he he's, starts going through 11 Acts 4.13 when um, the people after Peter teaches and talks and gives account of Jesus, preaches Jesus. And the people are like, this is an uneducated man. This man shouldn't have this kind of education and knowledge. But it says this, they took note that he had been with Jesus. Tell you what, man, when people are ministered to and their lives are touched and impacted because of words God uses your voice box to say to them, people not even engaged in the conversation will look back and take note that that person has been with Jesus. And lives get changed as a result of that source. Let's read about the hope, 21 through 31. Brother will betray brother to death. Sounds like it's really hopeful here, huh? Um, And a father, his child. Getting better. Children will rebel against their parents. That's normal. Um, And have them put to death. Ah, It's not there yet. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Side note, Bertram Russell was a great thinker and an atheist. This passage is why he decided that he could not believe in God because Jesus is saying, by the time you go through Jerusalem, I'll be back. And he could say he didn't come back. But I believe the disciples didn't finish it. They were short-terming it here, long-term mission here a student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master it is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the student servant like his master if the head of the house has been called beelzebub how much more the members of his household in nine jesus was accused of being beelzebub lord of the air and serving this lord of the air because of his power and jesus is like i understand man i've been there been there, understand it. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. What it's saying here is have hope. Yes, it's going to be tough. This life of a disciple is hard. But have hope because I will return. I am coming back. My power is at work in you. Jesus knows what you're going through. He's like, they're going to make accusations against you, but they've made them against me. I get it. I understand this pain and this challenge. And when he says, shout what I whisper to you, 
What does Jesus whisper to you in the, the most tender and sacred and, and hardest moments of your life? I, I, when I get those moments and I hit the wall, I hear, Matt, I love you. I died so that you can be restored, so that you don't have to live with this. That's what I should be shouting from the rooftops. That when we hurt, man, Jesus understands. He suffers with us. He doesn't insulate our pain. And then when I stand on the street corner and shout all the stuff that really just detracts people from Jesus, Jesus will shut that up and let love speak louder than anything else. And then he suffers with me. He doesn't insulate me from pain. When he's concerned about the sparrows, I love what he says. Not a sparrow falls without your father knowing about it. If God's that concerned about sparrows, why do they fall? If God's so concerned about me, why do I deal with the hurt and the issues and the pain and the suffering and the hard stuff if I'm more important than a sparrow? But here's a discipleship moment. This, this will separate us a little bit. The discipleship moment in this is that Jesus is not going to eliminate our suffering, but he's with us in our suffering. Because I truly believe that if he were to, to keep me from all hurt, that if I never experienced hurt, pain, loss, all the, all the stuff that really, when you think about it, makes you stronger, I would be a bratty, spoiled Christian child. And I probably wouldn't appreciate anything my Father in Heaven would do for me because He's always protected me. And then I become this Christian brat for Jesus. And then I look at someone else's pain, and I don't minister in their pain. I become judgmental in their pain. Because I'm like, well, what are you talking Jesus has insulated me from all this stuff. You must not have enough faith. I'm not going to go there. I'm stopping right there. There's the line. Here's a warning. 32 through 39. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose, here's a good Christmas message. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Hmm. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's not saying if you love your kids, you can't love God. He's not saying if you love your parents that you have no place in the kingdom of heaven. What he's talking about, he's giving warning here about priority. You are to love your kids, but Jesus is first. Remember what he's told us in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. When you put Jesus as a priority in your focus, you have an ability to love your kids more than you can without that priority and focus. When you put that focus correctly, you have an ability to love family and coworkers and people and people in front of you in traffic, and people beside of you in traffic, more than you would without Jesus being the priority. Back in the first century, when, when, when Jesus really started this, this way or the Christ movement or people were derogatorily called Christians, 
um, rulers would bring in families and they would, their families would be held and the man, the head of the household, the spiritual leader of the household would be asked, deny Jesus or your family dies because Caesar is Lord. I have never been faced with that challenge. But I can tell you that there were many men in the first century that fell to the sword in denial of Jesus And there were many men in the first century that watched their family fall to the sword and then they fell to the sword. Because neither way they were getting out of it. If they professed Jesus, it's over. When we follow Jesus in blood, our death certificate has been signed. That's the truth. I don't believe we denied Jesus in front of a gun or a sword most of us will not see that. Maybe all of us will never see that in our lifetime or be faced with that. But here's how our culture, here's how we start to deny Jesus. It's a slow drift process. We do it by becoming apathetic. Apathetic apathy just means a a lack of passion. That we make Jesus an accessory to life. That, ah, yeah, that's my Sunday outfit. Jesus is a part of that. And we live this mundane, passionless life where we're not following Jesus. We're just kind of giving him a little bit of something every once in a while, of time. Of You know, I, I'll throw a few bucks in, the, in the, the giving box when we leave service today. You know, or just whatever. He becomes an accessory to, to, to our life. And we start to deny him because we don't think his power is great enough. And we start to slowly drift away. And Jesus is saying, I have to be first. Even Jesus' own family gave him uh, trouble. James, you know, his family said, you're crazy to, to think who you think you are. And James, look at the amazing faith that he was transformed with. And then let's finish up with this in 40 through 42. This is the reward. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward You see, discipleship, and I know I kind of spoke truth, and it's not easy to follow Jesus. The gospel's free. The gospel's easy to kind of submit to, but it's not easy to follow Jesus. If it were, everybody would do it. But it's not easy. And what he's saying is, is hold on. Discipleship is not about beating us up. Discipleship is about us being broken to the point where it's all Jesus. It's about us living this life focused. And when we get to that end, when when we think that we can't go on, there's a cup of water that comes in front of our face. And Jesus will send people to help us. He knows the disciples are going to get weary. He understands their humanity and their discouragement. And at the right time, when we don't give up, there's that cup of water that keeps us going. 
there have been so many people that have encouraged Heather and I through the process of launching Marine Creek Church. There's been times it's just been difficult. And here's a cup of water. And God honors that. I don't believe that the reward is is me being refreshed. I believe God's got something better for me. God has something for his disciples that are willing to encourage others along the way. You know, we think about life as this race, you know, the rat race. And scripture tells us to run in such a way that we win the prize. Well, the way we win win the prize according to God's standards, it's not how many we finish ahead of. It's how many we help up along the way. That's how we run in such a way to get the prize. It's the water being handed out. It's the encouragement. It's picking someone up. It's a hand on somebody's shoulder that says, I'm here with you. It's, it's a me too moment of saying, thank you for trusting me with your struggles. Can I tell you, I struggle with that too. And it's a me too moment. And so we have to understand that we become mediocre and we become uh, apathetic when we don't challenge each other enough. When we don't set the bar high. Remember, Jesus has no standards for those who come into his kingdom. Everyone is welcome. It's by grace, through faith. It's that blood of Jesus, but then the bar goes way up. Because he desires his authority and power to work through you. And I I believe this, lowering the bar is not grace. If we lower the bar, that's not grace. That's cruel. Grace is keeping the bar high, but having a pad underneath when we fall. And so we will have the bar high. And I hope that I live, I hope I could live a perfect life. But those of you who know me, you're already laughing on the inside. But you know what? There's grace. But because there's grace and I know I'm human, I'm not just going to settle to say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace and lower the bar. I'm going to hit that pad of grace. I'm going to hit my knees. I'm going to confess. I'm going to say, God, I am human. I am a sinner. I fell. Let me fall into your grace and I'm going to get up and I'm going to jump as hard as I can and as high as I can to reach that bar. That's a discipled life. So my challenge is be a disciple, not just a believer. Make a commitment to say, Jesus, I understand the cost. I understand what it takes. I know that you have a mission for me. I know that you have gifted me. You've wired me. You've created me for purpose. You've restored me for this purpose. And now I choose to live in that purpose. You pray that prayer. I have to pray it for me. You pray it for you. And that's when that authority and that power and watch out. It may not be angels' voices clearing the way. Here's a, here's a culture reference. Remember in Princess Bride when the giant goes, Everybody move! God may not do that. You may have to fight and claw and scratch your way through that cl- crowd. But God's hand's behind you. And so live a life as a disciple. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Um, our, our head is full of a lot of the knowledge and the information that we cover today. Our hearts are full, God, because of, of what you're speaking to us, that we've, we're confronted with this question of not, not do we believe you, but are we a disciple? Not are we willing to say, 
yes, I, I love you, Jesus, but Jesus, I will follow you regardless of where you lead me, that I believe you've created me. I believe that you have restored me. I believe that you have purposed in me a gifting and a passion and a mission for your kingdom. God, give us the courage to pray that. Give us the desire to live that, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. God, forgive us when we fall. When we miss the bar, let your grace catch us. Let your grace shape us and mold us and give us the strength to jump higher. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you that you created us to live a life that makes an impact. Bless us this week, God. We love you so much. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.